Hey, let's have a round of applause for our technical team. They don't like to be applauded. We sure appreciate you guys coming early and staying late and doing all that invisible service uh, to our, our body. Well, we've been going through a, uh, a series on our Sunday mornings called A Bride Fit for the King. And I, I do have this too, Susie, so I'll, I'll try to do it. If I forget, you help me. And I wanted to talk just briefly, because we're also going through in Sunday school the nine marks of a healthy church, and one of the primary marks of a healthy church is expository preaching of the Word. That means the preacher says what the Bible says. That's all it means. It means you take a passage, you work your way through it, and the main point of the message is the main point of the text. Well, there are topical sermons that are helpful and good now and then, but the main uh, diet of the church is expository preaching. Well, I'm, I've chosen a topical series, but that doesn't mean it's not expo expository because, for instance, today we'll work our way through Matthew 16, verses 13 to 27, uh, looking at what the Bible says to us, particularly about this topic. So it's a, it's a topical sermon with expository messages in the middle. I hope that helps you. Uh, if it doesn't, talk to me at some point. I'd love to talk to you about it. I'm really enjoying it. I've been spending Tuesday over here in Pastor Bill's office, uh, Nathaniel's office uh, right up here, and the Lord has really met me around his word, and it's just such a privilege to serve you in this way, and I feel more served th than anyone, I think, by doing that. It's just been delicious. So today's message I've titled, I Will Build My Church, Jesus as the Foreman. And as I looked at this passage, I found uh, an interesting, well, more than interesting, an important topic of our day. This church, by the way, church building, the church isn't there yet, uh, but the building is being built in the jungle of Ecuador, on the coast of Ecuador, by action missionary Felix Valencia. Uh, I've asked him if he's a prosperity teacher. He says, no, I'm a, I'm a Baptist that preaches the word. I just believe there are a lot of people that need to hear it. So he's built a huge uh, foundation, and he's beginning uh, to, to put the roof on. He needs some help. If you're moved to help uh, poor Pastor Felix in the jungle of Ecuador, you can help him build his church. But this is not what we're talking about when we say Jesus will build his church, right? We're going to look at that. <laughs> Who am I? That's the question Jesus asks in Matthew chapter 16, but it's also the question that every single one of us is asking since the time we were born. Uh, so we came to Sao Paulo when our first child, Isaac, was about four, and he loved Batman so much that we've called Sao Paulo Gotham City ever since. Uh, and he had PJs from Grandma with, complete with a cape of Batman. And one Saturday morning, we heard a wail from his room and ran back, and he had jumped off the top bunk, thinking that maybe that cape would help him fly to the door. It didn't work. Uh, and we had to tell him that Batman, unfortunately, is not real, uh, and he was not him. Uh, but he, he was, he was uh, experimenting with this such important question. Identity has become a battleground. Can you be whoever you feel like? Or are you who you were born to be? I think it's a battleground in each one of us. I remember in college, dressing different ways. So I was from the South, and I was studying up in Chicago in the north of the U.S., and I had a big 10-gallon cowboy hat and custom-made cowboy boots. 
And when I walked to philosophy class in Wheaton, Illinois, in my cowboy hat and boots, I think people thought I was just a little bit below the IQ average of the university. Uh, but then the next day, I would show up like this with my tie and a coat, and that would raise the, raise the stakes a little bit. We judge each other by how we look, what we own. You know, if you pull up beside a guy in a beat-up Fusca, you think one thing about that guy. If you look the other way and there's a Land Rover, you just are tempted to think something else about that person when they're both actually sinners that need to be saved by grace. I think Jesus gives us the way to identity through this passage. And he starts out with this question. Who do people say that I am? And as I studied that this week, I heard my, myself asking the same question about myself. Who do people say I am? What do people think about me? Do I reflect their imp impression or opinion of me in my own estimation of my identity? And let's hear Jesus this morning asking, who do people say that I am? Peter, well, first they say, well, they think you're John the Baptist. They think you're Elijah. They think you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then, of course, Jesus didn't need that information, right? He already knew that's what people thought. But then he asks the second question, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the... Big mouth, right? First one to jump in there. But God reveals to him the truth. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up because we're going to go through quickly nine things that Jesus affirms that he is in response to Peter's answer. Um, who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That one's in verse 16. And Jesus uh, immediately turns to Peter and says, You are blessed, Peter Bar-Jonah. Now, some people think that was probably his last name. It's the way they did last names in first century Middle East. You're the son of Jonah. Bar means son. So Peter Bar-Jonah uh, was his earthly lineage, his earthly identity. It was on his age, right? That's who you are. And you're blessed because this doesn't come from the flesh. It doesn't come from earth. It doesn't come from your earthly lineage. It comes from the Father in heaven who has revealed my identity to you, and you have now confessed it. That's the central action of this text. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, I think it's difficult for us, sitting in this religious atmosphere, right? That's what it is. We're gathered for church. To remember that they had just walked 40 kilometers from the Galilee region up to Caesarea Philippi. That's what it says right at the beginning. When they arrived in the region of Caesarea Philippi, they're sweaty. They're tired. We don't really know exactly where they are, but it's not a religious environment. And Jesus says, who am I? I'm the guy that just walked in the sun with you all day. I'm a normal guy, and we've been talking about whatever. And Jesus sees through all of that mundane reality and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then look at what, Peter, what Jesus does. Right after he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, verse 18, and I tell you, 
you are Peter. So Jesus renames Simon Bar-Jonah Peter Petros as a result of his confession of the identity of Christ, believing in his heart and confessing with his mouth, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter learns who he is. The path to true identity is to truly identify Christ for yourself. No one else can do that for you. You can fool whoever you like, but if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus up, and that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And then Jesus will say, yeah, you know what? Let me tell you, you're not, you're even more sinful than you think. And my grace is even more powerful than you expect because I'm going to make you into my son. On this rock, Jesus says, continuing verse 18, I will build my church. Now that is a very problematic phrase, right? Because uh, Petros happens to mean rock, piece of rock. It's not the same Greek word as when Jesus says on this rock. I, I looked at that this week. It's Petros et, and Petra. So we're not talking about Peter being the only guy. We're talking about his, his confession of Christ and subsequent membership in the body of Christ and a representation of the apostles. So when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the you there is singular. And he's talking to Peter, the first one to confess Christ as the Messiah, member of the 12 apostles. We'll look at that in a second. Uh, but the rock that he's speaking of is himself confessed by the mouth of a believing heart. That's the rock on which Jesus builds his church. The rock right then was Peter. But the rock becomes you and me as we become part of Christ's very body and he builds the church in us and with us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh, I wanted to, to, to move on to this, that I am the I am. You know, the fact that Jesus is Jehovah in the flesh was a pretty shocking revolutionary reality. That's why he says, my father has revealed this to you. Jesus actually said at one point before Abraham was, I am, saying very clearly to the Jews, yep, I'm the guy. I'm the representation of the fullness of Jehovah in your midst. And they knew what he meant because they picked up stones to stone him when he said that. Um, where they were, it was called the gates of Hades. Now, you can read this background too, but I read this week that Caesarea Philippi had a cave out of which issued a river. It was called Peneus after the Greek god Pan. And that was after the, the Baal worship of the northern kingdom of Israel. So this is the tribe of Dan, where the, the idols had been set up by King Jeroboam centuries before. Deep idol worship, demonic activity, even rituals were done in that cave. And they called it the Gates of Hades, because they believed that evil spirits went down into the under parts of the world through that cave. Well, here Jesus walks 40 kilometers to declare or have his disciples declare that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
I was thinking about Pastor Gary's challenge to us to make disciples. Remember, the main thing needs to be the main thing. And he said, that means go somewhere where there are no disciples and tell them about Jesus. Teach them to follow Christ. That's what Jesus is doing here. He could have chosen anywhere to declare this, to say, I will build my church on this rock. There's even a large rock there, and some have surmised that he was standing on top of it. Of course, he's talking about his spiritual body built out of living stones. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to talk about this passage uh, more than once while I'm here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is the same Peter, by the way, named Peter by Jesus at Caesarea Philippi as a result of his confession of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Now that coming is in salvation. It's confessing him. It's believing in him, just as Peter himself did. Then what happens after that coming? You yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about spiritual stones. He's talking about the rock of his body joined together by every supporting ligament and built up through the confession of Christ. But notice that Jesus says, I will build my church. He says, it's my church. Uh, Hebrews 3 Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Moses would represent the house of Judaism, building the law, writing the history, but Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the orchestrator, even of all of that. So he's the builder, and it's my church. Can we just pause here and relax in the process of transition. Calvary is in a pretty major chapter of transition. Uh, Pastor Bill, we're glad you're here this morning, and we're aware that you won't be here physically for long. We hope you join us virtually from Ohio where you're moving, Um, but uh, what a foundation you and Mary have laid for us, and Nathaniel has continued, and others, the deacons over years and years and years, But I'm sure Pastor Bill would agree with me when I say it's not a faucet church. It's not one person or another who built Calvary International Church. It's the Lord Jesus himself. He has put us here. He brought people to lead us, to teach us, to guide over the years. And he will continue to do that. Trust the builder. It's his church. He's bringing the right people. The deacons are seeking him with all their hearts. Trust the Lord to use them and to use this process in our lives. I will build my church, says the Lord Jesus. Uh, And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, This is the first time the word church is used in the New Testament, in the Bible, actually. So Jesus uses this word, ecclesia, which is made of two other words, ek which means out of, so how do you feel being part of an ek? Uh, and kaleo, which means called. So you're called out, you're defined. It's almost like calling out part of uh, uh, 
big herd of sheep and goats, let's say. The sheep have been culled out and the goats perhaps left to the side. Uh, that, we, we could talk about that one later too. But ekkaleo, ekklesia, would be the word used for a synagogue, for instance, for a group of people who gather around a single purpose. And Jesus says, my group, my church, my flock, I am building for my purposes through the belief and confession of Jesus as the Messiah. I hope this morning that you have believed in your heart, your heart of hearts, that Jesus is God, and you have declared him your king, your Lord, your owner, your savior. Because if so, then you have become a living stone, joined together with others to form a spiritual house and a spiritual priesthood. So this is the foundation of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, I want you to see, I think, yeah, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Look at how Paul sees this building, this spiritual building. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You've been called out of the world. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles. Who would that be? Peter and the others, but starting here with Peter, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You'll remember that the cornerstone was an especially square rock that they used to line up the walls, and it was placed in exactly the right spot to make the building at the right shape and the right place, and it was laid on the foundation. So here we have the prophets and apostles bringing up the time of Christ. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus sits on that. And from there, each of us are built into this living household, lined up with Jesus, following him, coming to him, like Peter says, so that we can become part of that house. You remember the foundation of the New Jerusalem? We won't go there right now. But there are 12 foundation stones, the 12 apostles. Were the founda- are the foundation of the New Jerusalem. The gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. In whom, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here are the nine things. If you're taking notes, you can write those down. But this is what I want you to remember. Jesus builds the church in me before he uses me to build the church. Jesus calls me out. He calls my heart. He reveals to me in my soul from the Father's throne that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the capstone, the missing piece of your life and my life is Jesus Christ, trusted and confessed. Then I become a church. My body, Paul says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are not a little teeny church, you are not in the church. I don't care where your body is today. Peter became a member of Christ by his faith and confession. Yes, he had to grow. We're going to see that in just a second. But as we confess Christ, we become part of Christ, a member of that holy house that's being built together out of living stones. That's the foundation of the church. He's the foundation of my life. He's the foundation of our communal life. And as we're built together, we're built around him. 
He is the foundation. He's the giver of the keys. Look at verse 19. Oh, I did want to mention um, the gates of hell. A lot of people think the gates of hell are after us, right? Stay in the church because the gates of hell won't get you. Let me tell you something. Gates don't move. Unless somebody attacks them, the gates are going to stay right where they are, locking people in. We are to storm the gates. That's what we did last Sunday, right, Jeremiah? Went down in the middle of Carnival to Paulista and stormed the gates of hell. Tried to drag some folks out of there. Well, not drag them, convince them, right? Convince them to come out. And the gates of hell will not prevail over our advance against the gates. It's we who advance. It's we who are on the offensive. As we are Christ's advancing kingdom, then we take those gates and he promises that they will not prevail against us. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, a better translation of that timing is shall, will have been loosed, will have been bound. So it's not exactly our effort that does it. It's his authority in us and through us. But there is a real sense of participation here, of binding and loosing in our membership of Christ as uh, the, the holy priesthood. We're not going to get deep into this today, but I just want to give you two examples. Number one is forgiveness. John 20, 21 says, whoever you forgive will be forgiven or will have been forgiven. Christians are people who rejoice to release the grace they have received. Paul says, freely forgive as in Christ God forgave you. We hunt offense to forgive. We look for ways to say, Deus te abençoe, meu irmão. I was forgiven for so much. And who am I to not forgive you? In Jesus' name, I release you from all your debt. Now, that doesn't mean codependency, right? There are consequences to actions. But look for ways to release people through the forgiveness of the grace of God. The binding, one example of that would certainly be binding the strong man. Jesus says no one goes into the house of a strong man to take what belongs to him without binding the strong man first. So that would be prayer for a deliverance of people out of the grasp of Satan and his demons. And we can, through prayer, agreeing in Jesus' name, bind his hands away from the hearts and minds of unbelievers. So, Because the, Paul says the, the, the God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers so they can't see Jesus. And our job is to pray through that, pull those hands back, so that God reveals his essence, his identity to those people. Uh, so that's just a little, this again is a, a, a passage that causes a lot of conversation, uh, and we can continue to converse about it, but those are just two examples of how he's the giver of the keys. A friend of mine said he thought we should not hang bells in our church towers, but keys. So the wind would bang them together, and the world would know, would know that the Messiah is the liberator of the captives, that our job is to set the oppressed free, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us in Jesus. So he's the giver of the keys. He's the king of all nations. Now this I've extracted from verse 20, which again is a little uh, 
a question mark. Then he, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Wait a minute. Weren't these the apostles? Weren't these the evangelists? Why were they to tell no one? Well, it's because of what happens next that he announces to them that he's going to Jerusalem to die, be buried, and be raised on the third day. So he doesn't want to hijack that process, take a shortcut to somebody setting him on the throne. And you'll notice that all through Jesus' life, he's always escaping people who want to make him the king right away. Because he knows that his job is to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's there to be the king of the Jews, that the Jews then take to the cross and fulfill all of their own prophets who said that he would be a suffering servant for the salvation of the world. Of course, after his resurrection, then he says, go, preach the gospel to all nations, make disciples of everyone. So that time uh, is not yet in this passage in verse 20. In verse, so that's why I said there, uh, number six, I think, king of all nations. He's not just the king of the Jews. He wants to be king of all nations, and he does that through the cross and the resurrection. And of course, the sacrificial, sacrificial lamb of God. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So all of these things Jesus is revealing to Peter, who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, let me tell you what that means. And I'm sure Peter, when he said, wow, that's great, you're blessed, he looked around and they all thought, we're, we're the guys. We found the Messiah. We're going to sit on thrones and reign with him. We're going to overthrow the Romans. And then Jesus says, yep, guess what? I got to go to Jerusalem. They're going, yeah, so I can die and be buried and then be raised again. And they're learning that the, the direction that they expect is actually the world's direction of building. Jesus builds a cross-shaped church in every one of our hearts. And then he draws together these living stones. The architectural plan is the cross. It's not building like the world builds. Jesus doesn't care about numbers. He says, where there are two or three gathered in my name, I'm there. He's building a church through the cross. And he tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'm going there to suffer and to die as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not only that, he moves on from there. Uh, Peter takes him aside, verse 22, and began to rebuke him. He did it right, right? If you're going to rebuke somebody, don't do it in public. Take him aside. Do it one-on-one. -on -one. That's what the word says. But I think Peter got a little puffed up and thought, well, now the, God's revealing something else to me, and you're not going to go to the cross. We're going to make you king right now. This will never happen to you, Lord, he says. But Jesus turned to, and said to Peter, verse 23, get behind me, Satan. I love that it says he turned. And I think he probably turned away from Peter. It says he turned and said to Peter. I think he probably turned his back to him. Because he said, don't tempt me with the world's way of growth. Don't tempt me to take a shortcut beyond what God has called me to do, which is die and be raised again. And, sa and Satan uses uh, Peter's mouth to give that temptation. 
Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And let me challenge you who are leaders of Calvary. Set your minds on things of God. Don't think about what the world will, will think or do. Don't build a church by the standards of the world. Fix your minds. Fix your eyes on what God is doing among us, on what he values, on what, how he builds, which is always through the cross of Jesus. Then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so the lamb becomes the shepherd. The lamb goes before us, and then he says, follow me. Follow me how? Take up your cross. Your cross is different from everybody else's. It's that which the sovereign Lord puts before you as your, your measure, your measure for his grace to be sufficient, your measure for the dying to self, the measure not to earn your salvation, but to increase Christ's glory in the world through becoming more and more like him. Not only did he die for you, he wants to die in you and be raised to life abundant and eternal over and over as we follow him with our crosses on our shoulders. He's our sacrificial lamb. He's our shepherd to follow. Whoever would save his life, verse 25, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The great foreman is coming back, and he's going to pay, repay those who have built his spiritual house using gold and silver and precious stones, as Paul says. Hopefully not wood, hay, and stubble. What are you building into your life? As we move toward the Lord's Supper together this morning, I want to challenge you to see that stone in your own heart. Are you a member of the Holy Temple of God? Have you come to Him as your cornerstone? Have you confessed Him as your Lord and believed in your heart that nothing can put out the life of one who is in Christ? That's who you are. When you say Jesus is Lord, he says, you are my daughter, you are my son, you are a member of my body, my work, my mission in the world. You are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. He starts telling you who you are from the time and through your life as you confess who he is. Mark Twain wrote a story called The Prince and the Pauper. And it was about a young boy who was a prince of the land and wanted to see how his people lived, and so he dressed like a beggar and went out into his countryside. And it turns out there was another boy who looked just like him who was actually a poor boy. And the guards from the palace went and searched for the prince, and they found this other boy who wasn't actually the prince and took him to the palace and tried to dress him in, in, in robes and make him the prince. And, of course, he was very confused and uh, meanwhile, the real prince is trying to convince everybody that he's not the beggar boy, he's the real prince. It's a good story. I encourage you to, to read it, or there's a, even a movie of it. But it represents my life, because I was a pauper. 
And I came to the king and I said, you're the king. I want to be part of your kingdom. And he made me part of his kingdom. He caused me to be born of him so that I am actually a prince in the eternal kingdom of God. But the devil is always coming to me and saying, no, you're not. You're a pauper. Look at, the, look at how you talk or think or live. And I have to continually renew my mind and say, I am part of the builder's great living temple. I am a living stone. Who are you? Where is your identity rooted? Is it in what other people say about you? Are you fearing what they might think? Or have you looked at the living stone, the, the cornerstone of Jesus, and said, you are my Lord. I want to build my life around you and around those who confess you as Lord.